Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. Jeff and I are so excited today to be sitting down with Diana Nguyen. If you don't know her, Diana is many, many things. She is a creative entrepreneur, which means that she's a writer, producer, director, theatre maker, guest speaker, drama facilitator, MC, and performer. This has included performing at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival since 2011, being the co-creator and executive producer of Fee and Me TV, which is the first ever Vietnamese-Australian family comedy series, and she's also appeared on The Project and ABC Q&A. Most recently, though, Diana brought the adaptation of Alice Pung's novel, Lorinda, to life by co-writing the story for the Melbourne Theatre Company. She has also recently taken out the top spot in the 2021 Asian Australian Leadership Summit's list of the 40 under 40 most influential Asian Australians. Diana, it is an absolute pleasure to hear you here. How are you going today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's been a bit chaotic. I feel like it, we've just been like trying to figure out technology together. Yeah, we're trauma bonded now by this this tech experience. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here we are. Here we it's are. worked out. It's worked Look, out. I want to get started though by asking you, Diana. Honestly, what an amazing wealth of experiences. We'd absolutely just love to hear about your journey. Tell us about your childhood and how you've got to where you are today. So my childhood, uh, I had a very interesting childhood. I grew up with music in my life, so. My mum and dad are refugees, Vietnamese refugees, and uh, unfortunately we grew up with domestic violence in our home. And so music was my kind of escape from experiencing that. Like I remember when I was seven years old, when I was in grade three, my mum and my sisters, we had to be put into a women's refuge home. And somehow, luckily, our neighbour next door was a ballet school. (laughs) So... I started doing professional ballet classes um, Mm. when I was seven, eight years old, which is very rare for an Asian girl to do. And so that's why I think when I realised that I really loved performing arts, regardless of what it was, whether singing, dancing, and, you know, now writing. And so I've done a TED Talk and I talk about that experience of that seven, eight-year-old girl and how the arts saved my life. And I really do believe that the creativity that has been soaked into my body has made me who I am. And so, you know, you talked about Fee and me, you talked about my career in that amazing bio, has been because the arts saved my life and allowed me to be who I need to be. You saw Lorinda when we talk about, you know, being survival mode and what you need to do. So if you add that extra layer of privilege and racism and growing up with that, with all that stuff happening the arts was where I went to number one all the time. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I got chills. I, I think that's really, really incredibly powerful to hear. And it's just wonderful how you've been able to kind of have that part of your life and you've been able to transform it 
into something that has been just so overwhelmingly good for the community, for people. You know, we were just talking about Lorinda just before we started recording and Jeff and I just, I mean, I cried so much in that play. I mean, it was like way into that topic, but you know, it was just absolutely incredible seeing that people like you are behind productions like that. So thank you so much for sharing that. I think that, yeah, that really is really powerful. Well, thank you. Lavinia was amazing. Isabella and I both watched it. I watched it on Thursday night, so it was it was the premiere. And man, it was electric in there. I was like, did not know what to expect. The entire, I don't know, it was hour and 40 went by so quickly. And I don't know, I, we haven't actually spoken about this, Isabella, but I feel like, could you relate to a lot of that? Because you went to an old girls' school. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Predominantly white. And I was just like, this this quite triggering like there's so many experiences that I could 100% relate to but I guess like before we dive into the detail of it we'd love to hear about you know how you got involved in the project. Mm. So I've known Petra for over 12 years now and we worked in a theatre company called Melbourne Playback and in all industries you know people you know clicks you know people who come into your life and they move on and so Petra I moved on to, you know, now the Associate Director at MTC. And lockdown happened in 2020 and she reached out and said, I've got this book, have you read it? And I said, yes, Lorinda. And uh, she said, do you want to write it with me? And I said, yes, I've got nothing to do during lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's give it a go. So, uh, yeah, we started writing during lockdown. And I have to say we wrote this play over 18 months, 90% on Zoom wow. and on using Google Docs. And <laughs> and sometimes the internet, as we've seen today, <laughs> tech stuff doesn't work. And there was this one time I remember Petra and I were on a phone call for four hours because nothing worked and we just were very passionate to keep working yeah. on the script. So we'd spend four hours on a phone call creating Lorinda. And so that was the beginning process and then it led to having our first development in April last year in 2021. Mm. And it was so amazing it's like to hear the words come out of actors' mouths yeah. that mm. me and Petra had been playing. So, you know, there's 17 characters in this play. In the actual book, Lorinda, there's probably 30 characters she writes. She, she writes such a rich world that Lucy has to travel through. But, of course, mm. there's no way we could have written a play with so many characters because it would have been a two-hour-and-a-half epic Titanic mm. story. <laughs> and so when we heard the actors play out the words that we had written, it was so powerful. Mm. Uh, and the actors themselves sharing their own stories and, you know, informing us that we were in the right direction, that was really pivotal to the process. And then we had another development in July 2021 and three days before we went into lockdown. So we had a development with actors on Zoom wow. for four days. Yeah. <laughs> this show was always meant to be on the internet. Yeah. And then we had a massive development in December and, as you can now see, the show is what it is now and that is what Lorinda is. Oh, my God. It's amazing. Actually, the first thing I want to ask, who choreographed the dance scenes? Xanthony mm. uh, Beasley, she choreographed it. But if you're talking about the one where Nop fan just does her freedom dance all around the stage. Yeah, um, with the with the Gabba music just like blasting yeah. in the background. Um, that was more internal. That was all her. I loved it. Seriously, <laughs> seriously loved yeah. it. Um, when you start to, I guess for the audience at home, none of us have, actually, that's a bad assumption, maybe some of our listeners have actually 
put together the play, but like you write the script and then what happens next? Like, how do you, do you cast? Like, when do you start rehearsing? How long does that process take? We'd like to just like hear about that just a little bit more as well. Well, you know, I've done independent theatre. I've done La Mama, which is like fits 100 people. I've done stages all around the world, performed in front of 15 people in Edinburgh or, you know, you perform at you know, Chasing Keanu Reeves with 200 people in the audience. Mm. But as you saw when you walked into that auditorium, you knew this was pretty epic. Mm. Like mm. you cannot hire that space. That is only for MTC shows. So the process really was that once we finished the script writing, Petra, who is the AD, you know, goes to MTC and says, we've got the script, what do you think? Mm. And then if it gets selected to be part of the program, which it was selected for the 2022 program, then do we start selecting casting, mm. rehearsal, where does it fit in the year schedule? And so it's only when it's officially selected, then can you do all the other selections and casting and mm. getting the creatives on board and you know, you know hiring them and locking them in for these dates because – the rehearsal period was five weeks long. And mm. so you've just watched five weeks of full-time rehearsing of these actors and these creators all being in the room together. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, so to be a program show for the biggest main stage theatre company in Victoria is very different if you do a show at La Mama or Melbourne Fringe where you just pay your registration, right. rock up and stage, sell tickets. Like this MTC is a multi-million dollar production company and Lorinda is a multi-million dollar play. I mean, it, it looked the part though, right? Like yeah. Everything yeah. was so sleek. Everything was so polished. Yeah. I, I am curious though about how this works. Like feel free to be as frank as you want. Like mm. is there much gatekeeping, do you think, in what shows are allowed to kind of get produced? Like who decides that? Like who makes up production or companies like the MTC that would allow stories like these to be heard? Because I would imagine that it is a very competitive process. And how do you judge on, you know, eligibility and criteria? What does that process look like? With MTC and knowing how much they invest and it's a full-time company, so they have staff that are full-time. So for them, it's about putting up either new work or work that people already love. So MTC subscribers love Shakespeare. Mm. <laughs> and, and musicals as you know you yeah. saw the cohort of people that see mtc mm. shows they have yeah. a particular hair color mm. you know <laughs> also the age bracket demographic too yeah. so mtc also have to cater to them now if we talk about the history of shows that mtc has put on they have over the years put on one asian show per year in 1999 it was golden shield uh, in 2020, it was Torch the Place. And in 2021, that was a bit of a mess of a year. Mm. And then 2022 is our show. So that's been the pattern. And for them, it, it is, you know, what does our audience want to see? It's mm. actually a risk for them to put Lorinda on. Because if you compare it to another play that was on just before our show, which was Looking for La Brandy, Looking for La Brandy mm. has been around for 30 years whilst Lorinda has only been around for eight years, Yeah, you know. And so Looking at La Brandy has a very nostalgic, has a massive fan base, but Lorinda doesn't have that massive fan base. But people know Alice Pung, people mm. do know me, but I'm not at that, you know, shining light like you know, Benjamin Law. I'm like I'm still progressing in my career. So it was a massive risk, I do believe, for them to put and trust that this 
was the play they were going to put on. And also you saw the content that's in this play. Mm. Like it's mm. not, oh, cradle hugging, oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. It's actually going, yeah. hey, guys, this is the shit that happened in the 90s and this is the experience of this young woman where each one of us who are Asian Australian or, you know, the minority, so South yeah. Sudanese, Burmese of Australia, you see elements of yourself in there. Mm. And so the audiences that usually see MTC, they are going, oh, my God, what is this? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and that's why we went, all right, well, if we know that information, then let's put Vietnamese in there, not translate it for them. Yes. So, you know? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Actually, so that. Double yeah. down. Double yeah, down. I love that so much. That actually feeds into my next question. And that's the thing. Like, I, I think it's really inspiring to see how you marry your cultural identity with your work. Obviously, you know, we touched on briefly being me and obviously Lorinda. But I think language has been particularly striking, you know, just the use of the Vietnamese language. And I was really struck by how part and parcel this was in the dialogue of Lorinda, which I felt was really quite radical. Um, and, you know, I'd love to kind of hear more about, you know, what went into this decision. Um, was there like a bit of backlash, you know, and were you ever worried about how this would affect a white audience who frankly, are often the ones that occupy spaces in theatre. Um, when I read Lorinda as the novel, so the family is a Vietnamese family, but Dijil dominant. Mm. At the beginning, we were like, we'll keep the Vietnamese and Dijil and keep honouring that. But then, you know, I was also thinking about how Dijil is quite a minority language in the Chinese umbrella. Mm. And also, I know a lot of Asian Australian actors here in Australia and not many of them are Dijil speaking. Mm-hmm. And also another factor is that I am Vietnamese. Alice writes in the book about the Vietnam War story, the boat journey in her book. Mm. And I felt the last two years MTC had put on two Chinese plays. Yeah. And for me, I was like, so when will my people get to be seen or their story heard? And so that was a very deliberate choice to mm. pick Vietnamese as the majority uh, story that we were going to see, that the language mm. was going to flow through this play. Like we don't want to confuse it with the Jew and Chinese and make it too complex already, but we deliberately chose that language. We spoke to Alice and she gave us approval. And, you know, the receptions that we've had from my Vietnamese community is that, oh, my God, I am seen. Yeah, my language is seen. Yeah. Vietnamese people now going to the theatre to buy tickets and, you know, oh, they're yeah. not cheap, these tickets. Yeah. So... That for me is so empowering. And you know, Jeff, you saw opening night. Like you saw, it was fifty percent Asian in that space, and that's never mm. happened before. It's never happened before, and that's why we, I was pushing for our VIP list to have people that represented us in that room. And so, yeah, uh, the reception has been amazing. My mother came to see it on opening night. Hasn't said mm. a word about it, but I know she's soaking that in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think um, one thing. And to sort of tag along to this question was hearing the Vietnamese dialogue and along with all the extra, I guess, the slurs, like the racial slurs, mm. I was looking around just to just assess the reaction of it. And it was always the white people that had this like visceral reaction to like, oh, my God, like you can't. Then you look at the Asians and it's just like this feels so real. You understand this to be a truth that you may have witnessed or may you, you may have experienced yourself, but potentially for the audience members, 
it was shocking. It's just like, oh, I've never seen this. Like, this is actually real. Was that like an intended part of it? It was just to show the reality of what that experience can be to be Asian in Australia. Well, you know, Alice wrote that stuff in her book. Like, I think people think racism hurts when you see it, but racism hurts when you don't see it. Absolutely. And so that's why, um, you know, there's that one line I always go, I'm glad I put it in, which is Asians are so funny but they're bad drivers. Mm. That was intentional for me because you hear people say that and we wanted to get that audience who might have said it, might know yeah. someone who said it, to yeah. register that. And, you know, you, we're getting Asian cast to say these lines, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's quite triggering, traumatising for them. But this is a play and they, you know, said we want to make this play and so they do that every night um, and they – they layer that on top of Lucy Lamb, who's played by Nop, every night. And so, you know, the cast are doing a lot of work to get this story to where it is. Yeah. And, yeah, so I like it that we're making theatre that's not comfortable. Mm. But for me, this show is not about them. It's about us. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, you saw the ending. And for me, it's the last two years with the whole, and you create this podcast during lockdown, I assume, during 2020. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for me personally as an, an artist and a human being, I saw the hashtag, you know, Stop Asian Hate. I saw Black Lives Matter. And, you know, there was this whole wave of people being called to advocate and you know, stand up and show up and do stuff. But that does take a toll on us human beings when we're mm. asked to do that all the time. And I think I really believe that before you advocate or do anything, just make sure you take care of yourself because everything else will work. So for me, that's why that ending is really important for me is because when you connect with yourself, then you can fight, collaborate, be with other people. And so that ending was my touch of my experience in the last two years of, you know, watching the world really melt down and evolve. Like we were having a massive revolution as human beings. But, yeah, the play is what it is. And you saw that amazing monologue that Nyop does, which mm. is, you know, the, the lot of fuck yous. Um, oh, my God. It was, I <laughs> we're not shy. Got sh I got Love chills it. the whole time. We're not shy. No, it was absolutely needed, I think. Like I think it was such a, um, yeah, visceral moment that I don't think I'll ever forget. I just wanted to say a massive thank you just on behalf of the Viet Australian community. Like I, this was like the second play that I think I've seen in my life where I, I feel seen and represented. The first one was called Saigon. It was actually part of Asia Topa, um, which I saw 2020 just before lockdown hit. And that was incredible because I remember taking my mum, my aunties, and even my grandma to see this play. And that was just like such an incredible moment for me just because I was like, this is a space that they've never been to. And like, how lucky am I to be able to take them here to see this play that has Vietnamese in it. And similarly, it was just incredible to see Lorinda and feel so seen, feel so represented. So just thank you so much for creating and carving that space for us. It is truly powerful. And I just can't wait to see like what you do in your incredible career. So that's Lorinda. And, you know, I love to kind of, you know, touch more on the other sides of you and your career so far. And obviously 
you've worn so many hats during your life and it's so impressive, right? Like from acting and producing all the way to comedy and hosting your own podcast, which is called The Snortcast, which I love. How do you go about balancing all these different parts of your life? Uh, a lot of self-care. Yeah. I, I talk about <laughs> it in Chasing Keanu Reeves, um, about the chasing and, you know, trying to sell tickets and the fame and trying to impress people. And essentially, um, that's why I started going surfing was um, I found myself driving an hour and a half on a freeway to the ocean, got on my surfboard and just sat in the water. And like, I really do believe that nature is a massive rejuvenating healer of ourselves. Um, but the funny thing about surfing is that I can't swim. Uh, so I surf. Oh, <laughs> what? Yeah. Don't worry. Everyone has that same reaction. You're still Stop here. On. You're still here. I'm not judging. Go on, go on. We, we learn how to swim. Is it something you want to do? Or are you just like, at this point, you're just like, nah. I've been surfing for six years down in Torquay. I've got my surfboard, got my wetsuit. Uh, and I only surf up to water up to my neck. So I can do freestyle in a pool with goggles on. But you can't wear goggles while surfing. That is the most uncoolest thing you could ever do, right, on a yeah, surfboard. Facts. So, yeah, facts. So I thought I was pretty good because I was up on the board and, you know, surfing. But I went to Bali in June this year and I nearly drowned because I thought that Bali ocean was same as talky water. (laughs) And my my partner watched me spin around like a fucking laundry uh, in the waves. (laughs) Anyway, I told my girlfriend this. I was just like, all right, I'm getting you ocean lessons, like ocean swimming lessons. So. I haven't surfed since June, which is quite sad, but I've run into the ocean to get water onto me. Um, oh. And I love baths. I love baths. Baths are very important for me. Like water yeah. calms my nerves down. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I will have a surf. I will have my ocean swimming lessons so I can go surf properly yeah. in the summer. But, yeah, the reason why I connect that with self-care is that, and I said this before, for most of my career I've been – running on survival mode Mm. and it's very different to create work when you're in survival mode and not in survival mode and only in the last two years have I stopped creating work in survival mode and it's Mm. a very massive difference I just come back to that which is self-care meditate write a journal take time for yourself go have that really expensive meal with someone and sit down for three hours and talk to them you know I just feel like the Asian culture how we eat get out leave like eat get out and leave Mm -hmm. but I Mm. for me like when I slow down that's how I manage what you see which is my career Mm. incredible incredible are there particular aspects of your career that you're kind of more drawn to is it the comedy is it the acting like what aspects of your creative entrepreneurship, do you feel like you, you thrive most in? Look, I started as a trained actor. I went to university mm. and then I, I've been acting ever since then. But then I was just getting too many bit part roles, like 20 seconds on Underbelly, 20 seconds on Upper Middle Bogan. It was just like I went to school for three years and I'm only worth 20 seconds. Then I looked onto TV and I was like, hang on a minute, who's getting a lot of work on TV? And I realised it was comedians. So in 2016, I pivoted and then started doing stand-up because Mm. that's when I realised I could stand up on stage for 50 minutes and take up space. Like no one could take me off stage. And it's a very easy setup. You know, you put a microphone, you hold it, and you talk into it. 
it's not like doing a play like Lorinda. That was five weeks of work, seven actors, creative team. But with stand-up, it's just really clean and cheap entertainment, to be honest. Mm, mm, There's mm. a craft to it, mm. but the yeah. setup is very clean and cheap. That's why I pivoted because that's the only work you can actually get in Australia yeah. when you become yeah. a comedian. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I love this whole stand-up side of it. I, my whole thing when I watch stand-ups, and I've always wondered, how do you build this material? Because there's just this flow and it's coherent and then there's all these setups there's mini jokes within like the broader narrative what you set up how do you sort of go about building out your set like okay. i obviously i don't really have aspirations to be a comic because i feel Ooh. i'd bomb but would love to hear how you go about it uh so there's really only one way but i made the second way Ooh, so the first me. way the number one way that most comedians in Australia or around the world do comedy is they they go up to line-up rooms, they line up for half an hour, wait for their turn, get up on stage for five minutes and they test their work. And so, you know, you have those five minutes, tight, tight five, test, 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 test. You listen to the recording and go, they laughed at that bit, they laughed at that bit, they didn't laugh at that bit, I need to work on that bit. And you could be doing that for a year or two years. There are still stand-up comedians who still haven't done a four-hour show yet who just get up testing five-minute sets, right? How did Diana do her 2016 show? That's the question you're asking me, <laughs> which is which is, I wrote an hour show. Um. I, I then went on stage, did the hour show, mm. and then died. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by fire. I love it. And I, I still it. had 20 minutes more material to go. Oh, my God. <laughs> And so that was a preview in Footscray. I did a preview at Footscray Bluestone Church. And then I had a week before I, had, I was going into the comedy festival in Butterfly Club. So for a week, listening to all the silence, wow. I cut, 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 cut. <laughs> I also had a director too. And she, she helped me wow. maneuver it. Cut, 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 cut. Yeah. Got on stage. Got 4.95 stars. Hell yeah. And I, I toured it around Australia for two years. Went to Edinburgh. But incredible. That's, that's how I do shit. <laughs> oh my god. Just the, what what are you thinking in that moment where it's just crickets? Like you're like what, yeah, what goes through your head? Geez. What goes through your head? That well, that first time when I did that first hour, it was sweat balls under my armpits. Like yeah. mm. and it's a bit of like a stunned deer. Mm. Yeah? yeah. But then I've been doing this for six years now. And the thing about stand up, and this is a tip for anyone who wants to do stand up that we love you to fail and when you fail, please acknowledge that you failed. Mm, Don't skirt and hop into the next joke. Like just do the, oh, I fucked that one up. Yeah, oh, yeah. No, that is yeah, always good. It. Yeah. Oh, oh, you guys are not getting me today. You yeah, know, yeah. Weird, Bit of crowd weird. work. That's it. <laughs> name name that your joke bombed or name that that, that audience that night didn't get it. <laughs> Yeah. And that they're, they're the stupid ones. Like you can go any way you want but never hide with stand-up because mm. the mm. audience are always above you. Mm. The stand-up is the fool. They're testing out stuff with you to make you laugh. So we're the jesters, you know, hey, here we are. Mm. Um, and if it doesn't work, admit that it doesn't work. Yeah. 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 Top tip at home. Um, I love watching Stavros Halkias. His crowd work is 
second second to none. He just goes around asking people like, so what do you do for a job? Yeah. And then the person tells him and he just rips them for like five oh, really? minutes. That, that, that's like his entire <laughs> set. He just rips people in the audience. Oh, it, it's great. Uh, but I guess like taking it back to your career, um, mm. obviously one of the biggest stereotypes that Asians have to endure is that we pursue traditional careers. Obviously, Isabella and I are walking examples of this. Isabella is going to be a lawyer. I work in management consulting. We are literally stereotypes, right? Um, and obviously, you've broken from this mold along with the stand-up advice that you provided to our audience. Um, yes. Do you have any advice for people <laughs> um, who want to sort of pursue a career in the arts? Especially people from, like, Asian backgrounds because, I, I, you know, I, I think, like, the narrative that I feel like I, I always had growing up, I mean, I love my parents, I love my family, always very supportive, but I do remember conversations where it'd be like, oh, you know, I really like singing or really like dancing. And they're like, do that as a hobby, you know, like do that as a side thing and like never as like a full-time career kind of pursuit, which obviously I think is a stereotype too, because it's like, oh, the security, yada, yada, yada. So I think, you know, for our listeners who do come from an Asian background or a background where I guess traditional careers are kind of the go-to, so to speak. Like, what What is your advice for people who do want to pursue like a career in performing arts or the creative industry, but who have to reconcile with that pressure as well? Yeah, I think as a generation, and can I ask you both, if your future children said to you, hey, I want to be the performing arts, how would you respond? Be 10 times happier. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I actually think I would encourage it. Yeah? Yeah, because I I know what it's like to have that expectation yeah. and to feel so tied to it that your choices become increasingly limited. And honestly, your worldview gets a little bit limited as well. It's sort of, I think the longer you follow down this path where you're obliging against expectations, just like those alternates just become further and further away. And, you know, now as an adult, I would never consider switching into a career in the arts. That's like away, but that's like so far away from me. And sometimes when like, if you think about it, it, it does feel a little bit sad that like that's not an option. And it was, to be fair, it never felt like an option. Um, and now that I did have kids, I wouldn't want them to feel that way. Like the world should be your oyster. You should pursue whatever you want to do, work hard at it. I think the Asian ethic of working hard is really important and that's something I'm going to continue to pass on. But whatever you do, like it doesn't matter if, look, if you want to do corporate, you do corporate, work hard at it. You want to be the best, I don't know, performer where you wheel garbage bins across the stage for five hours then you go be the best alternate performer of rolling garbage cans you know that if that's your thing you go do it like that that's yeah. just, that's what I'm sort of thinking mm, I agree well I guess for me because I got such a negative response from my mum she actually amped up my fuel to make her proud of me mm. so it was an Alice Palmer's book growing up Asian Australia and yes, my short story yes. is called Five Ways to Disappoint Your Vietnamese Parent, uh, Your Mum. I, I forgot what the title of the book is called now. Um, but, um, yeah, as I said, it was my mum walking out during intervals of my plays that made me go, I'm going to keep going so I can show it in your face when I stand up with my award that I've got it. Now, you're asking me what tip, right? That was the original question. <laughs> um, my tip is that if you really love it, please go to school and study it especially with performing arts and acting. 
I think there's a lot of cohort young people thinking they can become famous. And, you know, social media is fantastic. Like social media is amazing. But you cannot learn the fundamentals of vulnerability or breaking down character and networking until you go to school and you meet people who are very like-minded like you. And this is very old school of me to even say that because we live in this world where, you know, we're entrepreneurs and you have an idea, just go for it. But for me, as an actor and credibility, you need to invest in time so that your body can interpret other characters in life. And, you know, you see that on stage at Lorinda. Like I met she when she came out of VCA when she was 21 years old. Mm. She walked into audition for Fee and Me. Fee was originally a male character. She walked in, walked out, and the next week we changed Fee into a girl. And it's because she knew what she was doing. She knew who this character was. She knew the world. She was ready. She was ready to change the world by her words. And I am with the person who was also helping with the auditions. She's like, you can't ignore what just came into this room. And so for me, that's my biggest example of Chi, who, you know, is Fee and Fee and me, who plays my daughter. And now she's playing a mum on MTC main stage, right? It's the training. And yeah, and so if you are an aspiring actor, musician, anything, do the training because you set the foundations for yourself. But if you're an entrepreneur and I've got a startup, just go for it. Like don't worry about training. <laughs> just just go for it. But really invest in yourself. Like I still do workshops as an actor. When I was made redundant from my government job um, in 1996, I took that money and went to clown school for four months full time. And now I work as a clown doctor at the Royal Children's. And I would oh, never have gotten that job yeah. if... Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that job if I didn't spend four months fueling me, like giving back to me. Like, you know, we live in this world where we grab, 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 but when do you have space to let things sit inside of you? And, you know, you see that in Lorinda, that one moment where, you know, she holds herself and she goes, fuck. Like that's when the audience goes, shit, we just watched an hour and 30 minutes of just shit happening to you. And was there ever a moment where we got to sit still with you? You know, so I really believe that, um, you know, in the world that keeps, it's moving so, so fast that we need to sit still and just go, this is me, this is who I am and just be still. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. That question incredible. went all over the place. Yeah. No, I, that was the perfect answer. Um, <laughs> and you are an incredible person. I, yeah, I'm, I'm oh, I did a lot of healing and- in 2020. <laughs> so just like, you know, I was pretty fucked up before then. <laughs> so. <laughs> Just letting you know. It's all right. It's all a journey. <laughs> all a journey. All a journey. <laughs> Last but not least, you know, like obviously you've accomplished so much in your time and I'm so impressed by everything you've done and you, and you do it with such a grace as well and you're still so incredibly down to earth and it's just, yeah, you are incredible. What is next for you? Well, it's for you and me. Ooh. So it's actually two things. So I'm working mm-hmm. on a new podcast at the moment. So I've got a team that Love. are taking care of me. It's hopefully come out by later in the year. It's very, oh, very fantastic. exciting. Yeah. But it's 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 coming from the Chasing Keanu Reeves show mm. and about pleasure and all that stuff. So, uh, and joy, like joy is 
the reason why I exist. And a lot of people, when they've watched Lorinda and see Nyop dance in that, you know, poof, 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 mm. they go, fuck, that's amazing. Like there's yeah. pure joy in that. And that's, yeah. you know, in the racism and shit that we've faced in the last 30 years, you know, when we take care of ourselves, joy helps us go on the next day the next day. Um, so that's that's one one thing I'm, I'm up to uh, next 12 months. But the biggest one is Fee and Me. Mm. Fiona and I created this show in 2011 at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and 12 years later we are now in development to make into a TV show. And this Incredible. is so important to me, so important to me that I'm not going to have a baby until I give birth to this one first. <laughs> so. <laughs> Priorities. So many priorities. People are concerned. People are concerned. But that. Kim Hoon cannot be pregnant in an Aoyai. It is the most awkward yep. looking thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> Aoyai is a tight man. <laughs> and there is no big bags you can cover that that stomach with. Yeah. So, yeah. And also I really want to enjoy this process. I really want to enjoy making Fee and Me. We've got this amazing team. We're with the number one producing TV company, Northern Pictures. I've got this core team, uh, the Fee and Me team, who have believed in this project ever since we made this web series to what it is now. Uh, we have got an audience that are just waiting. Um, and particularly, you know, for Fee and Me, um, and if you, if you do, your listeners are listening to this, um, if you go watch it all the way to the end of episode five, the last black screen that comes up with the text is us saying thank you to our parents. And for me, I really do believe that when we see our parents on stage or on screen, then do we truly know that we exist. And for me, Fee and Me is so important because I want my mum's legacy to exist in this world. And so that's why, um, you know, Vietnamese language, I'm getting emotional because I can't speak Vietnamese to my mum like I want to, but I know this is my love letter that I'm giving to my yeah. mum. And so for You're any... making me <laughs> but Continue. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's like, like I don't want my mum's story to disappear. Like, you know, they came on a fucking boat. They rarely talked about how hard it was. And, you know, we're the generation who have that power. We're that generation, where, like you two just said, you can let your child be whatever they want, but our parents didn't let us be that <laughs> because they worked so hard and I get why they worked so hard. They did it for us and, of course, we have trauma from that. And so <laughs> this is acknowledgement of that intergenerational conflict, that intergenerational love that no one really understands but only we do. And so, yeah, we're going to make Fee and Me and it will be one, one story of an Asian-Australian story that represented and I just hope um because I I can't keep doing this and you you know read my bio I can't keep doing this alone we need more people to come up and stand up and tell their stories we can't have one crazy rich Asian story we can't have yeah. you know one Ronnie Chen we can't have one Aaron Chen we, we or Lizzie Hu and Annie Louie we need multiple we need to like multiply so that there's no excuse for tokenism there's no excuse that I didn't know that person existed because I only know one Asian person. Mm -hmm. You know, that that one, you know, that line that everyone laughs is when Katie says, uh, you're my only Asian friend, you know. Yeah. Like, 
you know, and people relate to that. Yeah, um, 100%, 100%. So, yeah, so we, I want to cut that shit up. Like, stop making excuses that you don't know other people. So we show up and that's what I've been doing. But I'm really tired. I'm ready to take a break. Mm, you deserve it. <laughs> Yeah, I deserve you, it. But let me make fee in me first, and then I'll take my break and have my babies in Switzerland somewhere. Because um, <laughs> my partner's from Switzerland, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that I'll have a massive detox in Switzerland. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and become and become Swiss. And just eat raclette and fondue nonstop every day. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Oh. oh my god. Well, Diana, this has been an absolute ball. We've laughed, we've cried, um, we've experienced <laughs> we've so been many tech issues. We've been frustrated, everything, everything. Um, this has been an incredible episode and it's just been an absolute delight to hear from you, hear your story um, and to hear how you've been able to kind of create this space for people like us and it is honestly so inspiring and we honestly can't wait to see what else you do in your career so excited for Fee and Me when is the tentative date for that in terms of release do we have an idea TBC we're still very fresh so we're fair. very very mm. fresh so just watch out just know that I'm sacrificing my motherhood to do this that's all you guys need to know at home <laughs> it's gonna be worth it that's it yeah I, I reckon maybe the best episode we recorded just because of all the the chaos that's gone into it i just feel like like i'm sweating right now like i'm uncomfortable but i just feel like you know the hero's journey has come to a conclusion and we can't thank you enough diana no thank you for being patient no thank you for being patient without the issues I, I whipped out, if you're watching the Zoom, like, like you're watching the clip, I'm fucking holding my microphone so that <laughs> so we can make this recording happening. Um, but it's, it's happened. This is the magic, it's right? It's got to fail exactly. to make the best stuff in the world. Correct. So, Correct. 100%. I'm upwards. Um, before we wrap up, was there anything you'd like to plug? Um, obviously, go see Lorinda, everyone. It's an incredible play. Anything okay, else yeah. you'd like to plug for the time being? Um, I said this when I accepted my official Asian Australian Top 40 Under 40 Leadership Summit Award and I said the arts has had a very difficult time the last two years. Like, you know, with Lorinda, you've got seven actors on stage and COVID can fuck us up any time and that's the whole industry. And I'm just saying if you can invest in something that I love very much is buy a ticket, listen to a podcast, invest in a Patreon, put some money so that we keep doing the shit that we love, then we'll keep making work. You know, we, the only reason why we make work is because of ticket sales and funding a career and salary. And, and that's why I call myself a creative entrepreneur is that I now strategically make money from what I love. And so I need the audience here just to remember, like if you, go, I think if you, you know, happen to be at the comedy festival, buy a ticket to see something that you've never seen before. Get, put money into the arts so that we keep doing what we love. That's it. Love it. Love it. Best way to end an episode. Um, <laughs> guys, if you enjoyed this at home, because I certainly have enjoyed this ride, please give it five stars whenever you uh, get your, fuck, I'm losing my words, uh, podcast and uh, go see Lorinda. We'll catch you guys in the next one. Thank you. See you later. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.